We hear God's word. We know his direction, but we look at sin before us and we say, I want independence. I will be master of my own destiny. And you know what? I'm not going to have God ruling over me. And no one's going to tell me otherwise. Now that is the fallen human heart. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. We're continuing a message called Forfeit of Life. And and Jonathan, as you point out, many of us, we want to call our own shots. We want to be the one in charge. But I hear you saying, hey, if if that's where you're at today, that's a problem. I mean, you're, you're potentially asking for trouble here because that is a fallen human heart. What do you mean by that? When we speak of the fall, we really speak of the historical events that took place in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve decided that they would not live under God's rule, but would live their own way. They would choose their own path. They would decide for themselves what's right and wrong. And ever since that time, uh, we have, as a whole race, as a humanity, collectively, have lived as fallen people not in the fullness of joy and in obedience and in relationship with God as we were created to be, but but we were damaged by that history, and we continue to live out that pattern ourselves. And it, it is now natural to us to rebel against God, to choose our own way, to say that we, we won't go his way, because we do, as, as was mentioned earlier in the program, want to be masters of our own destiny. And the Bible would teach us that that's a disastrous way to live because it causes uh, chaos in the near term and it leads to death in the long term. Well, sobering thing to think about, but important for us to think about as well. So if you can, grab a Bible and join us in Genesis chapter 3 as we continue our message, The Forfeit of Life. Here is Jonathan. The next thing we observe, and this is the core of the devil's deceit, the next thing we observe is a distortion of God's word. Notice it with me, middle of verse 1. He said to the woman, did God actually say, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. I don't know if you've ever had the very unhappy experience of being part of a relational breakdown or some kind of nasty conflict, maybe in a family or in a work or a business relationship, perhaps one that has even played itself out in court. In situations like that, one ugly thing that can happen is that a malicious party inside all that can try and twist the words of another party. Maybe you've seen that. Things that have been said are called into question, are quoted out of context, are subtly manipulated so that one side is charged with having said things that they never actually said, and they're made out to be cruel, harsh, nasty, when that actually wasn't the the, the reality. Now, that kind of distortion, which happens often enough, it's an ugly thing. It can be a fearful thing to behold. The serpent is really crafty here. He begins by planting a seed of doubt. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, as it happens, no, God did not actually say that. Glance back with me to chapter 2 and verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not 
deeds. Well, that's actually markedly different, isn't it? God was generous. God was open. Any tree, one restriction. But you see, the devil's tactic is to twist his words. And interestingly, he made God out to sound harsh and narrow and unreasonable. And that's a warning for us, isn't it? We can be inclined to rebel, to reject God's word, if we think it sounds ungenerous and harsh. But you see, the presentation of God's word is all wrong here. God wasn't being harsh. He wasn't being unreasonable. Now, tragically, the woman hadn't paid close enough attention to what God had said. So when she tried to correct the serpent, she actually got it wrong herself. Verse 2, God told us that we could eat of the fruit of the trees, but not the one in the middle, nor may we touch it lest we die. Well, well hold, hold on here, Eve. God didn't say anything about touching it. That wasn't part of the instruction. He said, don't eat it. This winter, we managed to cut a couple of days out on the ski slopes. It was a very limited season for us, but it was good to hit the slopes just a couple of times there. I haven't skied very much in recent years, and uh, I certainly felt pretty, pretty rusty again this year. I had prided myself, though, on not having actually fallen on the slopes, probably since I was a teenager, for a long, long time. But I was a little embarrassed that this last time we were out, I managed to take a little spill. Nothing was hurt beyond my pride, and I'm sure a little bit of humbling on the slopes is no bad thing anyway. I, I couldn't quite figure out what happened as I reflected on it. But all I knew was that something in the slope of the hill set one of my skis uh, out of kilter. I must have gone over some bump or some imperfection in the slope. And it, it, basically, I just got out of alignment, and I, I just couldn't recover it. And eventually, down I went. Now, the devil, he cleverly nudged Eve out of alignment, set her off her, her balance, and while she made some effort to respond, she clearly wasn't in a position to get things back in line. And the great fall, well, it became inevitable. What became clear pretty early on is that she hadn't listened that closely to God's word, didn't know fully what he had said. And of course, the results of that were tragic. Now, within that, there is, of course, a great warning for us, isn't there? In his great passage on the theme of spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul tells us to be ready to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we need to have that sword ready. If we don't have the sword ready, if we don't know the Word of God, we're so vulnerable. And so let me ask you, let me ask myself, do we know it? Are we reading it? Are we reading it daily? Do we have it ready? Can we spot the devil's distortions, and there are distortions all around. That is a good question to take away, a challenge to consider. But now back to the garden. The distortion of God's Word now gives way very quickly to a doubting of God's goodness. Having thrown a cleverly positioned stone in the path of Eve's ski, as it were, with his question in verse 1, the serpent now comes out all guns blazing. He's not questioning the details of God's speech anymore, but assaulting his character. He calls God a liar. It's brazen now, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. No, no, no. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Wow, the testimony in the heated court battle. It now becomes overtly nasty. The gloves are off. It is a fight. God is lying to you, Eve. You're not going to die. Don't be silly. 
That's just scaremongering, fear-mongering. God is trying to control you with fear. That's what he's doing. God knows that if you eat of the fruit, you will gain wisdom, gain insights. You're going to know things you never knew before. Well, that's true. In fact, you're going to be like God. He is insecure. He's power-hungry, Eve. That's the issue. Don't let, don't let God get away with that, Eve. You need to stand up for yourself. You need to take care of yourself here, Eve. You can't be held back in this kind of a way, Eve. No, don't tolerate God's controlling lies anymore. Set yourself free. And friends, here we are starting to see why this actually happened, why it worked, and why we fall into the very same traps ourselves. God has put in place a prohibition. And in a sense, this one prohibition stands in the place symbolically of all the moral boundaries that God would eventually set and express for his world. That, I think, is the symbolic force of this but we look at those divine boundaries and at different times and in different ways, as we look at them, we will be tempted just as Eve was tempted. We will be tempted to think that the boundary is there not for our good, but for the sake of some restrictive and probably very self-serving agenda on the part of God. Theft. God says, don't do it. Well, actually, I think as I reflect upon it that it would do me quite a lot of good. It would benefit me. God's holding back on me. Dishonesty, lying. God says, don't, no, don't do it. But I, I can see how in this case I could probably avoid quite a lot of trouble if I did lie. God is making my life harder than it needs to be. Sexual immorality, adultery. God says, no. Well, I think it sounds fun. I think it would actually bring me a great deal of pleasure. God is holding back good things from me. And so now at issue is really the character of God. That's what it boils down to. Is he good? Does he mean good things for me? Are his intentions toward me self-serving? Or are they righteous and unmixed? Can I trust him? And in this unfolding tragedy, we see Eve, directed as she is by the devil himself, we see her decide that God is not actually entirely good, that he cannot be entirely trusted. And friends, that right there is the issue we face every time we choose whether or not to obey God's word, whether or not to heed his voice. Isn't that what it all boils down to at the end of the day? Is God good? Can I trust him? Can I have every confidence that he actually has my best interests at heart in what he says to me? You see, the drama of the garden, it plays itself out. It replays itself countless times in countless ways in every human life, in your life and in my life again and again. We recognize it, don't we? We know the dynamic. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called The Forfeit of Life. Now, we're going to pause right here, but we'll get back to this message in just a moment. 
If you ever miss a broadcast, you can always come and listen through our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org. You can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. You can also listen to Encounter the Truth on the go if you have the app. It's free. You'll find it at your favorite app store. Just look for Encounter the Truth, and that's a great way to listen to Jonathan's teaching whenever it fits your schedule. Again, go to your favorite app store and simply search for Encounter the Truth. Well, if you joined us a little late, we're in Genesis chapter 3, so grab a Bible and meet us there. Let's get back to the message. Here is Jonathan. Well, what follows next, naturally enough, is a decision to rebel. I don't know if any here would be familiar with the principality of Sealand and its storied history. During the Second World War, the British government built a series of platforms, concrete platforms in the sea off the east coast to detect and deter air raids on the mainland. One of these, Fort Ruffs, was decommissioned in the 1950s and abandoned by the military. In 1967, a man by the name of Paddy Roy Bates, along with his family, occupied this little platform, this little tower, and claimed it as a sovereign state, the Principality of Sealand. They issued currency and passports, reportedly 150,000 Sealand passports, eventually went into circulation. They were very popular, apparently, in Hong Kong. They drafted a constitution. They repelled attacks. They engaged in diplomatic discussions as a sovereign state. They behaved as a kingdom, and Paddy himself set himself up as a king. It was all ludicrous, of course. This was basically a big concrete post in the sand a few miles off the English coast. It was laughable. You can just imagine, can't you, the Queen sitting in her uh, parlor in Buckingham Palace receiving reports of the establishment of this rebel kingdom and sort of smiling as she sipped her coffee and read her morning paper. It is a laughable attempt to establish a realm. But Sealand is actually, to my mind, a wonderful picture of what Eve and then Adam did in the garden, of what we do in our own rebellion. Notice again the heart of the serpent's suggestion and temptation to Eve. This is middle of verse 4. When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Now, I think that gets to the very heart of the temptation. That's the bait on the hook. The idea that in taking this step of independence, of self-direction, of self-assertion, of rebellion, Eve will become in some beguiling way like God. She's claiming her own little kingdom. I will live my life in my way. I will decide what is good and what is bad. I will decide what is right and what is wrong. I will not be told those things by anyone. I am going to decide for myself. Satan says you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the point is not simply having intellectual knowledge of good and evil, but being in a position to make discerning judgments between those two things. That's the real force of this. And it's what Eve decides to do. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. It sounded good to Eve. It looked good to her and so she decided God is not going to set the boundaries here. He is not going to define right and wrong. I am going to do it. And Adam followed in her wake and took the same view. They ate, and the rest, as they say, is history. This is the start of the problem. 
This is the root of the issue. From this act then follows the judgment of God. The promised death, it comes not in a flash, not in a moment, but as the chapter proceeds, God pronounces a judgment on Adam and Eve in the world over which they had dominion and stewardship. The whole creation will now be subject to frustration and disorder and ultimately death. To confirm all that, Adam and Eve will be sent out of the garden and God's life-giving presence there. And the process of their physical decline and ultimate demise will play itself out in the wasteland of a world where they no longer enjoy direct access to God himself. This is ground zero for the disaster. This is the source and the root of the tragedy of death. This, friends, is the core of the human crisis. And as we read this, we might be tempted to point the finger at Eve and at Adam and lament and bemoan the fact that they got us into this terrible mess. But the truth is, the unsettling truth is that we walk so consistently in their footprints and their footsteps, don't we? We we do, you and I do, and have done and continue to do what our parents did. We do it compulsively. We are by nature and by behavior their true descendants. That is our natural state apart from the gracious work of Christ. We hear God's word. We know his direction, but we look at sin before us and we say, you know, it sounds pretty good. That that looks pretty good. And you know what? I'm not going to have God ruling over me. I want independence. I will be master of my own destiny. I will set up my own pathetic little kingdom, and no one's going to tell me otherwise. Now, that is the fallen human heart. That is our natural bent now. That's an accurate summary, isn't it, of the spirit of our culture, the spirit of our age. It summarizes and explains human behavior and human history with an elegant simplicity. It fits, doesn't it? Now, it might seem very odd to begin our Easter series on the theme of life here with the problem of death in Genesis 3, but I think this is so crucial. I think this is so foundational. If we would understand why Jesus came, why he made that fateful trip to Jerusalem and carried that cross to Calvary, if we would understand why he died on Good Friday and rose again on Easter Sunday, we must understand Genesis 3 and the fall of humanity. You see, Jesus came down from heaven into this stricken world. He came to ground zero of the disaster. And rather than observe what's going on and then wash his hands of the mess and return to his heavenly home unscathed, he chose to do what it took to deal with the crisis, to get to the core of it. He chose to suffer. He chose to die. As I've mentioned before, we as a family live just a little outside town, and we we have a well for our water. We're not on the city mains. Most of the time, that's wonderful. We like our well water. Just occasionally, it's a bit of a headache. That was the case a few days ago. I noticed that a little pond was appearing on our lawn, and water seemed to be sort of bubbling up from the ground. We asked our well specialist to come and look. We were told that, you know, on the phone, it might be nothing, or it might be something pretty big. Not quite sure. (laughs) Uh, A gentleman from the company came and basically said, yeah, it's the pretty big thing, actually. (laughs) The thing that's going to involve a fair bit of mud and a lot of digging. 
we were pretty desperate to get the thing fixed. It was a Friday, which is always the day that things go wrong, isn't it? Uh, it was Friday, just ahead of the weekend. But I was pretty sure that the, the growing pond on our lawn would soon be moving inside into the basement before too long. It was pretty close to the house. And, and you know, that when that man came at that point, the nice gentleman could have, you know, wished me all the best and been on his way to enjoy his weekend, book an appointment for some time the next week or the week after. But, you know, first thing on Saturday morning, he was back at the house. There was a giant backhoe on our front lawn. And before long, this man was down in a hole eight feet deep on a cold morning, covered in mud, fixing our problem. He was so kind. He was so efficient. He wasn't going to abandon us for the weekend, and I was very grateful. I haven't yet seen the bill. He was a little hazy on that side of things. <laughs> Jesus could have looked on this stricken world, told us that the problem was our problem, and return safely to heaven. That's not what he did. Praise God, he took on himself the responsibility. He took upon himself the cost of making things right. He plumbed the depths of the crisis. He went to the cross to bear the judgment of sin for us and in our place. He did that that all who believe might be given the gift of life, the gift of spiritual life now, today, and the gift of life eternal beyond the grave. Now that, friends, that is the heart of the Easter message. That's the heart of the Christian gospel. It's life, life to the full, life freely given. As I was preparing this message, I was reminded of an old chorus we sang when I was younger. Some will know it. It's so simple, but it captures the message. And for us who know the message, it's a reminder I, I, I trust that we can take away and keep in our hearts this week. For those who are new to Christian things, exploring, it's a summary of the truth to remember and ponder this week. It goes like this, so simple. There's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open, and you may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. It's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open, and you may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. Rebellion, sin, it has led to death and it has made this world a scene of disaster. But there's a way back to God. There is forgiveness. There is life. And it starts at Calvary when you come, recognizing that you're part of the problem. <laughs> you're a sinner. And you come to Jesus to receive forgiveness and to receive life. If you've never done that before, friend, let me urge you, don't delay. I hope you'll consider today what Jesus has done. Consider the disaster, consider the crisis, consider the solution of Calvary. I hope you'll consider those things. I hope you'll consider the offer of life 
and I'd urge you to receive it. In a world stricken by death, I hope that you might come to Jesus and find life. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth, wrapping up our message, The Forfeit of Life. It's part of our series called Life, a great Easter series. And today we've been taking a look at Genesis chapter 3. Well, Encounter the Truth is able to stay on this station because of your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you two books from Jonathan. They're both uh, The King, The Cross, and The Meaning of Easter. One is for you. One is to give to someone who you think could benefit from reading this book. Again, give a gift of any amount, support Encounter the Truth, and we'll send you two copies of Jonathan's book, The King, The Cross, and The Meaning of Easter. You can find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 1-833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884 or EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join us next time.